Please have a seat. I think I know most of you here, but for those who don't know me, uh, my name is Morgan. Um, I'm a member of Christchurch. Uh, I want to begin this evening by asking you to think about a time when uh, you found it hard to be a Christian. When has it been hard to follow Jesus? Difficult to do what Jesus wants you to do? Just take a moment to think about that. It's Easter Sunday, so we've been celebrating Jesus' resurrection. And if you were there this morning, you would have heard that we don't need to be afraid about what happens when we die. Because Jesus rose. Jesus is alive. And a few days after he rose, he ascended to heaven. And one day he will come back. But until then, we wait. And it's not always easy waiting, is it? Especially for Christians. The writer of Hebrews tells his early Christian readers to remember when they endured great conflict full of suffering, when they were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. And it's, it's still the same for many Christians around the world today. Uh, according to Open Doors, 360 million Christians in the world suffer persecution and discrimination. And many of these Christians have probably asked themselves at some point this question, is it worth it? When it's this hard, is following Jesus really worth it? Now, we might not face the persecution that they experienced uh, in the New Testament or today in places like North Korea. But being a Christian can still be hard for us, can't it? I recently asked some of the teenagers in our church which of the the tricky bits of the Bible they sometimes wished weren't there. And one of them said to me, anything to do with homosexuality, because then I wouldn't be bullied in school. Others tell how hard it is to, to stand on the sidelines and resist joining in with their friends when they're doing something that, to be honest, looks a lot of fun, but the Bible tells them is wrong. And for many teenagers, it's just too tough. We only have to look at our own church family to see that. At some point, most teenagers in church will ask, is it worth it? And tragically, many answer no. Even if they know it's true. For them, the cost is just too much. It was for me when I was 13. What about um, us adults? What makes it hard for us? Are there temptations that it's just too exhausting to resist? Maybe we resent having to do the right thing when our non-Christian friends seem to be having all the fun and getting ahead. Maybe uh, we've been pushed to the edge of a social group or, or left out completely. Some might have lost their job or missed out on promotion because of their faith. If your spouse isn't a Christian, then it might be hard just to keep coming to church every week. 
Some will have even lost their family for their faith, especially if they've converted from another religion. A few years ago, when we lived in London, we had a friend called Mark. Mark was an actor. Mark was a Christian. And Mark was gay. He was celibate, but he was still gay. And getting to know Mark taught me just a little bit about what it means to take up your cross every day and follow Jesus. When I knew him, God hadn't taken away the burden of same-sex attraction. It was just part of who Mark was, part of his identity, part of what made him Mark. And so every single day, he told me, he would wake up feeling there was something wrong with him. And knowing too that in, in one sense, he would have to face that alone for the rest of his life. But one of the hardest things for Mark was how people in church would treat him when he reached out for help. Some were just clumsy, suggesting he'd just get a girlfriend. But others were cruel, saying things like his struggle were not an appropriate topic for church. Can you imagine that? Being told that you're suffering for Christ was not an appropriate topic for church. I know Mark often asked, is this really worth it? But some of you might be listening thinking, well, yes, sometimes it's a bit uncomfortable, but I don't really find it hard being a Christian. Well, the truth is it's meant to be. Jesus told us to expect it. In 2 Timothy, Paul tells us, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in, G in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So if we are living for Jesus, then one day it will be hard, even if it isn't now. And for some of us, that day has already come. For some of us, being a Christian has at times felt so hard that we too have asked ourselves that question, is this really worth it? And even if you haven't asked that question yet, you probably know someone who has. It might be your spouse or, or our kids or the person sitting next to us tonight. So that's what I want us to think about tonight, is why is it worth following the risen Jesus when it can be so hard? And I want us to think about this by looking at the reasons uh, people might decide that it isn't worth it. And it basically boils down to two mistakes, uh, and we usually make both of them. The first mistake is not understanding what Jesus is offering us. And the second mistake is thinking that the things of this life that we have are better than they really are. And John 4, our passage tonight, helps us correct both of these mistakes by showing us what Jesus is offering and by exposing the truth about the things of this life that we are so attached to. First then, what exactly is Jesus offering? Have a look with me, um, if, if you would, uh, at verses 5 to 7 of this evening's passage. Verses 5 to 7. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was 
from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon, or the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? That seems like a perfectly reasonable request, doesn't it? I'm thirsty. Please, can I have a drink? But look at verse 9. The woman is shocked. How could you, a Jewish man, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? The problem, as John explains, was that Jews and Samaritans did not mix. Especially not, it seems, a, a Jewish man and a Samaritan woman. This conversation should not be happening. So how does Jesus deal with this very awkward social situation? Look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus responds to being called out on a social blunder with a quite astonishing claim. Never mind all that stuff about Jews and Samaritans. If you knew who I was, you would be asking me for water. And not just any water, living water. There are three huge things Jesus is telling her in verse 10. God has a gift to give. There's something special about Jesus. And if you ask, if you ask me, I'll give you living water. Now, even on the face of it, without digging into it, that is a massive statement. Clearly, either this guy is crazy or there's something much bigger going on. So surely there can only be two responses to a statement like that, can't there? Either, what are you talking about? You're a crazy man, go away. Or, wow, this sounds amazing, where can I get some? But what's her response? Look at verse 11. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. So the woman's response to Jesus' bombshell statement, how are you going to get the water out of the well? Basically, where's your bucket? You see, in verses 11 and 12, the woman is, is only focused on what she can see. You think she might ask any number of things after Jesus said that. What's the gift? God's got a gift? What is it? Who are you? And maybe biggest of all, what is living water? But no, she's, she's only focused on her immediate physical needs. So in verse 13, Jesus explains a bit more about what he's offering. Here are the answers to the questions she should have been asking. Everyone who drinks this water, i.e. the water from the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Wow! What's on offer? Jesus offers nothing less than eternal life. Some of you might have heard of a tech um, millionaire called Brian Johnson. 
Johnson is a 45-year-old software entrepreneur. Um, he has more than 30 doctors and health experts monitoring his every bodily function. It's not because he's ill. It's because he wants to get younger. His team is led by a regenerative medicine physician. And they're trying to reverse the aging process in every one of Johnson's organs. He wants to have the brain, the heart, the lungs, the liver, the kidneys, the tendons, the teeth somehow, skin, hair and bladder of an 18-year-old. Now, just getting the program up and running costs millions of dollars. And this year, he is on track to spend at least $2 million on his body. I could have saved him all of that if he'd just read John 4. Now, he might be extreme, but he's not alone, is he? As I read about Johnson, I thought my back could do with a bit of de-aging. And revenue last year from the global sale of anti-aging products was nearly $70 billion. We as a human race spent $70 billion on one year trying to get or look younger. So it seems lots of us really do want to stop getting old. And here is Jesus saying, drink. Drink what I give you and you'll live forever. We can't beat that, can we? Surely this is a no-brainer. It's worth giving up anything to get this. This is the Holy Grail. Or is it? Is it? You see, I've noticed over the years that as much as we hate death, and we do hate death, and we do resist getting old, many of us also really struggle with the idea of eternal life. Maybe we, we just can't get our heads around it. Um, we're just overwhelmed. Well, maybe we just think we're going to be bored. I think we often take it for granted in church life that eternal life is a great thing. But we don't often think about why. We know we are going to spend eternity worshipping God. But some of us might even shrug our shoulders a bit at that, if we're honest. We know it's a good thing, but... I mean, if you're a person that struggles with church on a Sunday, then an eternity in church is maybe not that attractive. Some of us might struggle to get past that image of an eternity on plastic chairs in Roundwood. Well, John helps us with this, fortunately, by giving us a little glimpse of what eternity will really be like. And it's all wrapped up in this imagery of thirst and water, I think we, we take easy access, to wa- uh, easy access to water for granted, don't we, here? If we're thirsty, we just turn on the tap, out it comes. Clean, cold, refreshing water. Not so in countries like the Democratic Republic of Congo. This is what one lady called Corrine shared about her experience in her village before uh, they had their own water source installed. She lived, Kareem, with her husband and seven children. 
But just to get a single jerry can of water, she had to wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and then would not get home with the water until 9 o'clock in the morning. Seven hours in the middle of the night to get one can of water. The queues were long and she had to pick bits of debris out of the water as she collected it. She was at risk of being attacked at night and her children often suffered illness because the water wasn't clean. But now the village has its own water source. Five taps. Just imagine how Kareem might have felt the first time that she got to drink clean water from those taps. Imagine the look on her face as she takes her first sip of that clean water. But even with access to uh, easy access to all the water that we, we need, we know what it means to be thirsty, don't we? I do now. We're trying to remember... Try to remember a time, if you can, when you've been really thirsty. We've all been really thirsty, haven't we, at some point? Perhaps a a hot day at the beach. Um, Some of you I know are runners or you ride your bikes. Imagine that you've gone out, those times you've gone out, you've run out of water when it's been too hot or you forgot it. Some of us like country walks. Have you ever been on a long walk on a summer's day aiming for a pub and you get there and it's closed and you know you've got to walk miles to the next one? Some of us like, I don't, some of you like DIY. And last summer in that scorching heat, people outside painting and doing DIY. Can you imagine that feeling at the end? You're so thirsty, your mouth is dry. Your tongue is sticking to the inside of your mouth. Now remember how you felt when you got hold of that drink you were craving. That glass of iced water, Coca-Cola, some squash, a cold beer. I desperately need one now. A lemonade, not a beer, sorry, lemonade. I did think about bringing a beer actually now. My daughter said, no, don't do that. They're not ready for that. Um, how did it feel? How does it feel when we're absolutely gasping? I can tell you now, it's amazing. I'm dry, drying out here and I'm drinking this. And it's, it's, I'm sorry, this is really mean, isn't it? You're probably already thirsty now. It's really, it's satisfying, isn't it? It's an amazing feeling. Getting a drink you've been absolutely gasping for. Now just, just hang on to that feeling of getting that thing you've been, that satisfaction, that pleasure, I'm desperate for this, I've got it. How do I feel? That desperate, that, that feeling of having a desperate thirst quenched. Because I think that helps us, with a, give us a, gives us a tiny glimpse of what Jesus is offering. And, and I don't mean that heaven is a giant water cooler or a big bar. What, what I mean is that Jesus isn't speaking about literal thirst in verse 13. What he's talking about is all of our deepest longings and desires. And and like a a physical thirst being quenched, somehow all of those desires and needs will be satisfied. For all of eternity, we will never thirst, Jesus says. That means our desires and needs will be met before we even think we're missing anything. You're thirsty when it's too late. 
I'm thirsty because I haven't had enough to drink. We'll never get to that stage about anything. Forever. This is how one writer describes it. He says, Because God is infinite, he can be infinitely enjoyed. His character is endlessly deep, unsearchable, inexhaustible. Imagine the scope of the entire universe. Trillions of shining stars burning brighter than the sun. Magnificent constellations, billions of spinning galaxies, all magnificent and vast, colourful and mysterious. Yet they're finite. Brilliant though they are, they fall utterly short in comparison to the breadth, length, height and depth of the love of Christ. His love, grace, kindness, wisdom, power and mercy each stand as never-ending infinite universes for us to delight in. Just think of it like this. Every day with Jesus in eternity will be better than the day before. Now that does seem like a pretty amazing deal, doesn't it? Yet still, even if we try really hard, we often end up like this woman at the well in verse 11, or at least I do, all the time. We still only see the physical in front of us. Our friends, our family, our homes, our careers, they're all wonderful things that are right in front of us now. So it's so tempting to see our life now, I think, as more real and precious, and eternity as this sort of vague and abstract thing over there that one day we might get to. And so naturally, we start to value what we can see more. But the truth is, the reality of those things, as wonderful as they are, is very different to what we think it is. And this woman's life in John 4 exposes that reality. It corrects our second mistake. What we have in life isn't nearly as good as we think it is. Look with me at verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So why does she want Jesus' water? So she doesn't have to keep coming back to the well. She still thinks this is somehow about just getting a drink. She's still not getting it. And that's because she's still looking for the wrong thing. She's still thinking Jesus is talking about physical needs now. She's not seeing beyond what's right in front of her. So Jesus uses the story of her own life to, to redirect her gaze, to get her looking in the right place. Because it seems an odd thing to say, doesn't it? Go and get your husband, Jesus says in verse 16. But I haven't got one, she says, which is actually true, but as so often the case, is only part of the story. That's true for us too, isn't it? Our, our superficial conversations we have with friends about our lives, they only reveal the details we want the world to see. You just have to look at social media. I mean, it is just saturated, isn't it, with di distorted views of lives that only show the good bits and hide all the messy stuff. Which I guess is why life on an Instagram feed 
might look like heaven on earth sometimes. But Jesus knows the truth. He knows the truth about our lives. And he knows the truth about this woman's life. No, Jesus says, you don't have a husband, but you've had five. And now you're living with someone who isn't your husband. With one question, Jesus peels back that veneer and exposes the reality of what she's been relying on in her life. Five times this woman has tried to find security and fulfilment in marriage. Five times it's failed. We don't know why. Maybe she was divorced, maybe some died. We don't know whether she uh, caused her difficulties in marriage or she was the victim. Probably both. But being married five times was a big deal in those days. And she ended up living with a man who's not her husband and she was probably shunned by the society around her because of this. And we know that because she went to the well at the hottest part of the day. No one went to the well at the hottest part of the day. She goes then because no one else is there. This woman has been desperately trying to find satisfaction and fulfilment in her relationships. But it hasn't worked, has it? With one question, Jesus exposes how brittle and frail those things she's trusting in are. For this woman, um, it was relationships. But I wonder what it is for us. Where are we looking for security and satisfaction? Maybe it's our marriages too, or our kids, our friendships, our careers, our houses, our lifestyles, our holidays, technology. The list is almost endless, isn't it? Now, all of those things are good things, wonderful God-given gifts for us to enjoy. But even though at times they might seem absolutely rock solid, in the end they are just as fragile as this woman's marriages. Careers end in redundancy or retirement. Kids grow up. And sometimes, sometimes sadly, those relationships between children and parents break down. Friends fall out or move away. Houses get worn out and, especially around here, often get knocked down in the end for someone else to build a new one. Holidays get cancelled or they disappoint us. And ultimately, death will separate us from all of these things. Even the longest, strongest, happiest marriage will eventually be ended by death. None of these things can quench our thirst forever. As COVID so painfully reminded us, all these things are really just as fragile as the woman's marriages in John 4. And to be honest, even when these things are going well, they don't really quench our thirst, do they? We always need more, don't we? We always need more. Some of you uh, will be old enough like me to remember the tennis player John McEnroe in his prime. He still holds the record for the most titles of 149 and he holds the record for the best single year 
which he set in 1984. Surely a career like that is enough for anyone. Well, this is what McEnroe himself says about how he felt in that year of 1984. He says, I was standing in the Portland airport waiting to board a flight to LA for a week off. And suddenly I thought, I'm the greatest tennis player who ever lived. Why am I so empty inside? Except for the French and one tournament just before uh, the Open, I won every tournament I played in 1984. 13 out of 15, 82 out of 85 matches. No one had ever had a year like that in tennis before. No one has since. It wasn't enough, his words. Not even John McEnroe's amazing career could quench his thirst. And once we understand how fragile and finite and ultimately unsatisfying the things of this life are, then maybe, just maybe, we'll see that it's not such a big deal to give some of them up for Jesus' sake. Remember what he offers. Can the things we might have to give up for him really replace that? So how do we respond? Well, I think it's helpful to look at how the woman in John 4 responds. Have a look with me at verse 19. She knows there's something special about Jesus, but she still doesn't know who he is. So Jesus tells her. Verse 25. I know the Messiah is coming, she says. Well, verse 26, he's here. Who is Jesus? He's the Christ, the Messiah. That's why he can break down the the great divide between Jews and Samaritans. That's why, going back to verse 10, he can give us eternal life if we ask. Now, what does she do with this bombshell? Look at verses 27 and 28. I love these verses. All through the passage, the woman has been fixated on literal water. Now, she just leaves a jar full of water behind. She just leaves it at the well. What she's found in Jesus is so much more important. And she goes to tell others. Verse 29, come, see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Messiah? Now, it does sound like she's exaggerating a little bit. But maybe that's just how it felt to have a personal encounter with Jesus. Either way, it's true. Jesus knows everything we ever did and everything we'll ever do. Everything. And yet he still offers us eternal life. If you're here tonight and you don't follow Jesus, he still knows everything about you, every darkest secret, every thought you'd never want anyone else to know. And yet he still died for us and still offers us eternal life if we ask him, even though he knows everything about us. Maybe we've accepted Jesus' offer of eternal life, but we're still sitting by the well. Or at least we've left the well, but we're still looking back at that jar of water thinking, maybe I need to go back for that. Maybe I need that. 
Is that our problem in Harpenden? Are we still too focused on what we can see? For most of us, this is a really nice place to live, isn't it? And I find it really hard to see beyond that. We can get stuck like the woman is in verse 11. And by that, I mean, we can keep looking for happiness and satisfaction in things that aren't going to last. We still want to be at the well. We still want our jar of water. Because if we're stuck like that, we're just going to keep getting thirsty, aren't we? Only Jesus can quench our thirst forever. So what can we do about it? How can we follow this woman's example? It's not just about giving things up. It might be. But I think it's more about making sure we appreciate what Jesus has given us and how everything else pales into insignificance next to him. And I want to finish with a couple of practical suggestions to help us with that. The first is, keep serving in church. And if you don't serve, start. A friend of mine um, in the church who was helping at the recent Youth Weekend Away, he said something like this to me. He said one of the reasons he loved doing it was because it meant he stopped thinking about everything else in his life, about everyday things for a bit. He did put it more elegantly, but the point he was making is that when we're pouring ourselves out in the service of God's kingdom, we naturally take our eyes off of the things in front of us and we focus on God and his kingdom. And the second idea, is this is an application point, but I'd usually avoid because you could just answer anything with this, but I think it fits here. Um, if you stand in the middle of Harpenden on a clear night, how many stars do you think you can see? I don't know. A few hundred? thousand maybe? Does it look like this in Harpenden at night? No. Why? It doesn't look like this because... Why doesn't it look like this? Because light pollution. We're surrounded by, you know, just if you're near the tennis club, I mean, it's, you can't see any stars. It's just bright lights everywhere. And I think our lives in Harpenden are like this. We have got so much around us distracting us from the amazing gifts that God has given us that we forget about them. The things of this world are like electric lights. They're like the tennis club lights. They stop us seeing the beauty and the majesty of God's kingdom. And so sometimes I think it would help if we could make the effort to go somewhere dark and look up at the stars. And I don't mean the literal stars. I mean, what we need to do is to keep reading our Bibles and reading them in a place and in a way where we cannot be distracted. As I've reflected on this passage, I, I, I thought, okay, how can I do this? I thought, right, I'm going to take myself off to a cafe with a hard copy Bible and no phone. Because this is a very bright light in more ways than one. Just my idea. For me, um, 
I think it's almost impossible to concentrate on God when this is anywhere near me. Have a think about what it might be for you. Where can you go and just focus on God with no distractions? And if you can think of it, just try it once this week, just once. And if we can do that, God, he might just use us like he used this woman. I think the reaction of the Samaritans in this passage tells us something amazing about the effect that Jesus had on this woman. We've already seen her life probably made her an outcast of sorts because she had to go to the well at noon. She wasn't exactly someone the town would be rushing out to listen to, was she? And she wasn't just telling them gossip. She was claiming she'd met the Messiah and a Jew at that. So a Samaritan woman who is an outcast from a village tells them, I've met the Messiah and he's Jewish. Or I met somebody who might be the Messiah and he's Jewish. Now, wouldn't we expect the town to just kind of mutter about her being a mad woman and carry on about their day? But they don't. She didn't have all the answers, but something about the way the woman is and the way she describes her encounter with Jesus makes them want to find out more. They're straight out there to see him. And many believed because of her testimony. It must have been some testimony. What an effect Jesus must have had on her. So just imagine if we could share Jesus like this woman. Imagine what effect it would have on this town, on Harpenden, if we could share Jesus like this woman. Now please do not feel guilty if you haven't or you feel like you can't because that's my first reaction when I hear about amazing evangelism, to go, oh, well, I can't do it, you know, other people can do it, I can't. Don't do that. Don't beat yourself up. And don't think you need to have all the answers, because she didn't. Instead, just try focusing on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Focus on what he's offering. And then be ready for God to use you. Let's pray. Father, we want to ask you this evening to help us see how dazzlingly brilliant Jesus is and how dazzlingly brilliant eternal life with him is. Please help us to see beyond the superficial bright lights of Harpend in our lives here to the wonder of your kingdom. Amen.